Hello, my name is Amanda Thomas and I'm a partner in the International Capital Markets Practice at Allen and Overy. I'm joined on this podcast by Jen Creswell, a counsel in the same team, and we're delighted to have the opportunity today to share with you our thoughts on the EU prospectus regulation as we approach application day on the 21st of July. Together, we have over 30 years of combined experience in relation to all things prospectus related, having been fortunate enough to experience the original prospectus directive or PD, PD2 and now PD3 as the new EU prospectus regulation is known to its friends. Yes, Amanda, thanks for the painful reminder of our length of service here. So we thought in this podcast we could share our thoughts on some of the main areas of change for mainstream debt securities issuance. We'll talk about some of the changes in terms of the content and format of a prospectus before moving on to discuss some of the topics related to a prospectus, such as supplements and advertisements. I think we should warn people at this point that there won't be many gags coming up in the next half an hour. Sadly not. And before we get started properly, I think it might be worth explaining when all of this will actually come to pass, given that there is some grandfathering thrown in to assist issuers. Yes, indeed. So prospectuses approved before the 21st of July will be grandfathered. The prospectus regulation says that these will continue to be governed by the PD until the earlier of the expiration of their validity period or 12 months after the 21st of July 2019. ESMA published some prospectus regulation Q&As in March of this year, confirming how grandfathering will work in practice. On supplements, they seem to say that a supplement issued on or after the 21st of July in relation to a prospectus or a base prospectus, which was actually approved prior to the 21st of July, so a grandfathered prospectus, will have to address unamended PD requirements. Outside of this, though, a prospectus or a base prospectus drawn up on or after the 21st of July, even if it incorporates by reference a registration document approved before then, will need to comply with the new prospectus regulation. And this reflects how grandfathering pretty much worked under PD2 back in 2012. But grandfathering only applies to the prospectus part of the regime, right, and not advertisements? Yep, that's right. So advertisements published from the 21st of July, regardless of whether they relate to a grandfathered prospectus or not, are governed by the new prospectus regulation regime. I'll come back to advertisements later in the podcast. But to kick off, Jen, do you want to talk about where you think one key potential area of change will be? OK, and I'm going to hedge my bets here because you did just say potential area of change. I'll start with risk factors because it certainly seems to be the area that ESMA have highlighted as due an overhaul. In fact, ESMA's final report on the guidelines on risk factors, which will be applied by competent authorities reviewing prospectuses from the 21st of July, well, that says that... The prospectus regulation is unequivocal in terms of seeking to influence a change of course when it comes to preparing risk factor disclosure and focuses on the importance of the quality and clarity of risk factor disclosure. However, whether it actually turns out to be a key area of change will very much depend, I think, on the approach of individual competent authorities when they're reviewing risk factors. The guidelines certainly preserve some flexibility for the competent authorities and also helpfully indicate that the competent authority may take into account the type of investor to whom the prospectus is addressed. In terms of actual requirements, as now... 
risks featured in a prospectus must be specific and material. In fact, an issuer is required to assess the materiality of risk factors based on probability of occurrence and expected magnitude of their negative impact. An issuer is not required to present risk factors according to its assessment of materiality, but may disclose its assessment on a scale of low, medium or high. I don't think it's clear to us, is it Amanda, that any issuer will want to do this? No, I can't imagine anyone will want to do this voluntarily. Let's not forget, though, that issuers won't be able to avoid putting the most material risk factors first in each category, will they? Yes, and I think that's probably consistent with good risk factor drafting practice in any event. And to give an example of existing competent authority approach, the UK FCA's technical notes on risk factors already requires this. You mentioned categories, and people may be aware that risk factors will have to be presented in a limited number of categories. The guidelines note that an issuer may be challenged by a competent authority if it includes more than 10, quotes, categories and subcategories in the case of a standard single issuer, single security prospectus. Now, there's no indication of what standard means, But the guidelines do specifically acknowledge that a multi-product based prospectus is an example of a prospectus where further categories and subcategories may be appropriate. I should add here that in general, we hope that the current practice of dividing risks into issuer risks, guarantor risks, security risks and market risks will continue to work going forwards. But this may be an area which causes issues in certain circumstances. Quite. There is also a fair bit more tucked away in ESMA's guidelines on risk factors. I'll quickly mention three things. First is the requirement that risks will need to be corroborated by the content of the prospectus. That's either by specific information elsewhere in the prospectus or by reference to the overall picture presented in the prospectus. Second, risk factors should include quantitative information to illustrate the potential negative impact of a risk where it's available in previous previously published documents and appropriate. Otherwise, the prospectus must describe the impact using a qualitative approach. We wait to see how this one will play out in practice. Third, it's clear that competent authorities could challenge the overall length of risk factors if it obscures their comprehensibility. Okay, but what does that mean in terms of changes should issuers should look to make in a draft prospectus they're submitting on or after the 21st of July, Jen? Unfortunately, I don't think we can say exactly what will be required to address each aspect of the guidelines. And much, as I said a minute ago, will depend on the approach of different competent authorities, some of whom I suspect will already regard their review of risk factors as compliant with the guidelines. But whilst we don't know exactly how this will pan out, I do think issuers should be prepared for a shift in risk factor practice to a certain extent. It would be sensible if issuers can demonstrate when submitting a draft prospectus that they have made at least some changes to address the guidelines, be that counting categories or ensuring that risk factors are not overly long, out of date or duplicative. But enough on risk factors. What about you, Amanda? What do you think will be a key area of change? Well, in the retail space, it's hard to ignore the latest round of changes on summaries. 
Let's remember, though, that prospectuses for debt securities with a denomination of at least Euro 100,000 and debt securities traded on a qualified investor-only segment of a regulated market, they'll be exempt from the need for a summary. They will. But outside of that wholesale exemption, summaries will look quite different once again. The big point here is that the current Annex 22 of the PD regulation is disappearing and along with it, the strict five-part summary with all the elements that have to be followed in order. Instead, under the prospectus regulation, we'll see the table format being removed and we'll have subsections with mandated headings. And the summary will only have four parts, not five. So those will be introduction and warnings, issuer, securities and offer and admission. Risk will be covered in the issuer and the security sections, and there's a limit on the number of risk factors. That's no more than 15 risk factors in total in the summary. Our friends at the Commission do like their numbers. Yes, they do. And to give you another numerical limit, unfortunately, there'll be a further squeeze on length, with summaries being restricted to a maximum length of seven sides. And that's down from the current 15 pages, or 7% of the length of prospectus. But there is some flexibility, isn't there? There's some flexibility, so a summary can be extended by odd pages where it covers several securities or there is a guarantor. And I suppose we're only talking about the length of an issue-specific summary in a programme context. Yeah, that's right, because the prospectus regulation is clear that a summary will only be drawn up once final terms are prepared and it will only be specific to the individual issue. So base prospectuses won't have to include a base prospectus or programme summary, which is very welcome. It should be easier to manage the seven-side limit in an issue-specific summary context when none of the programme-level optionality and disclosure has to be included. Now, whilst we're on the subject of issue-specific summaries, it's worth pointing out that it's unclear whether a base prospectus should include a form of that summary. And if the base prospectus doesn't include a form, then you can see that for speed of issuance, it might be beneficial to have it annexed to the procedures memorandum. Anyway... Aside from risk factors and summaries, Jen, there is, of course, an array of changes to other disclosure requirements of both a general and more specific nature. Indeed. On the general side, information in the prospectus will be written in a concise form, as well as being easily analysable and comprehensible. In all honesty, Amanda, we do always try to meet these tests in our drafting in any event. In terms of the more visible things, prospectuses will also have to include a statement that the prospectus has been approved as meeting standards of completeness, comprehensibility and consistency, and that approval by the competent authority is not endorsement of the issuer. In terms of other points on general disclosure, the inclusion of hyperlinks in a prospectus is also different under the prospectus regulation regime. Other than in relation to documents incorporated by reference, hyperlinks have been pretty much outlawed under the PD regime. The prospectus regulation, though, is much more open to them. A prospectus must contain hyperlinks to all the documents incorporated by reference into it. A word of warning, though. Those hyperlinks must be functional for 10 years. That's an optimistic provision, I think, given we all know how often websites move around and hyperlinks break. Yeah, and in terms of hyperlinks to other websites, though, the prospectus regulation allows the disclosure to refer to other websites, but sensibly recognises the risk involved, as it requires a statement to be included that the information on the website to which the prospectus is pointing does not form part of the prospectus and has not been scrutinised or approved by the competent authority. 
We could also talk briefly about some of the changes to the specific disclosure requirements. And I suppose before doing that, it's worth talking about one of the big wins of the advocacy efforts engaged in by the ICMA and others during the development phase of the PD3 legislation. That was the retention and broadening of the wholesale regime. It's now available not only to non-equity securities that have a €100,000 minimum denomination, but also to non-equity securities that are to be admitted to trading on a regulated market or a segment of a regulated market to which only qualified investors have access. We know that the Luxembourg Stock Exchange has one of these QI segments and that other exchanges are considering establishing one. What this means is that if an issuer is admitting its securities to one of these segments or markets, it will also be able to take advantage of the benefits of the wholesale disclosure regime, regardless of the denomination of its securities. We've referred to annexes a couple of times and hopefully people will know or will have gathered that the detailed level two disclosure requirements will continue to be set out in annexes, which will sit at the back of the new delegated regulation on format and content, scrutiny and approval. Yeah, but I think it's important to note that things look somewhat different in the published final version of the text of that delegated reg from what we saw through the consultation process and in the ESMA final report. Now, no explanatory memo was published with the proposed text, but informally, the Commission indicated that they decided to take the opportunity to modernise drafting, which in many instances had not changed since 2004 or five. Apparently, there was no intention to make substantive changes, which is generally good news. The delegated regulation also omits some of the current definitions people may be familiar with, those for debt and derivative securities, for example. And there will no longer be a table of combinations, which is the table we currently have, supporting the operative articles in the PD regulation to demonstrate which annexes apply depending on the type of issue. All of this kind of thing doesn't necessarily make it easy to understand which annexes are intended to apply when under the new regime. But assuming we can get ourselves comfortable in the main on what applies when, there are still some changes to disclosure requirements to get to grips with. So Jen, do you want to pick your top two? Okay, that's not easy because there are a fair few, but I'll start on the registration document or issuer disclosure side and will plump for the removal of the bank's registration document annex. So this is, of course, the disclosure annex that currently bank issuers can follow when drawing up their prospectuses. And in terms of the level of disclosure, falls somewhere between the wholesale and retail annexes, but is handy as it applies regardless of the denomination of the securities that will be issued. I suspect its deletion won't be too much of a problem, as a couple of the less purposeful disclosure requirements in a debt context have been removed from the retail annex. For example, the disclosure requirements around board practices. And what about on the securities note side then, Jen? Well, given the increasing focus on all things green, I'm going to plump for the fact that the wholesale securities note includes a new disclosure item requiring issuers to disclose the use and estimated net amount of proceeds. Whilst this may be unwelcome for wholesale issuers who don't currently have to disclose, disclose use of proceeds, it will provide a hook for issuers who issue green bonds under a wholesale programme, as it provides a disclosure item on which they can hang specific use of proceeds disclosure in final terms. That has historically presented challenges, given issuers can only include in final terms things for which there is a specific disclosure requirement. 
So this could be helpful whilst we wait to see where the Commission come out in their work on green disclosure, which we of course know they're specifically considering. I think that's right. A couple of quick points on format have just occurred to me while you've been talking, Jen. Whilst the Base Prospectus Final Terms format will remain for programmes, it's worth noting that there is a specific new requirement for information on different securities included in a Base Prospectus to be clearly segregated. We think that the current approach to drafting Base Prospectuses already does this, including in the structured product space, but it's an area which may be open to interpretation. And then we can't talk about format without mentioning the much-vaunted innovation introduced under the Prospectus Regulation namely the Universal Registration Document, or URD. But all I'm actually going to say about it is its name, as in a DEC context, we think the Base Prospectus Final Terms format will continue to prevail for programmes. So I strayed away from content briefly, but before we move off talking about content completely, Jen, one other innovation under the new Prospectus Regulation regime is the introduction of a simplified disclosure regime for secondary issuances. Do you think that holds any appeal for issuers? I'm afraid I think the jury is out on that one. So what you're referring to, Amanda, is the regime in Article 14 of the Prospectus Regulation, which is supposedly a reduced disclosure regime that can be used by issuers in two circumstances. Firstly, it can be used by issuers who have securities admitted to trading on a regulated market for at least 18 months and who then go on to issue securities fungible with those. But secondly, and potentially more significantly, it can also be used by issuers who have equity admitted to trading on a regulated market for 18 months and who then go on to issue non-equity securities. In some respects, the secondary issuance regime is a reduced disclosure regime. For example, when you compare it to the retail and wholesale registration document annexes, it doesn't include a requirement to provide a description of the group and whether the issuer is dependent on other entities in the group. Another win could be the fact that only 12 months of financial statements are required. However, this is slightly tainted by the fact that it specifically includes a requirement to disclose half-yearly financial statements, although it is worded in a way that suggests that they only need to be disclosed where required to be published. And I imagine that issuers who have equity on regulated markets will already be producing half-yearly financials, so perhaps this isn't such a great burden. Quite. But I'm afraid the regime still doesn't appear to deliver the alleviation intended. This is because I suspect issuers in general will be very wary of the requirement that the prospectus must include a concise summary of information disclosed under the market abuse regulation over the last 12 months. That just isn't required in the retail or wholesale annexes. It does look to me to be an additional barrier to use of the secondary issuance regime, given the extra time and cost involved in drafting it. It's also of questionable utility, given that MAR disclosures will already be available for investors. I agree completely. I think we can pretty much wrap up on content and format at this point. Let's just quickly cover scrutiny and approval. There are new specific criteria for a competent authority to consider when reviewing a prospectus for the three C's, being completeness, comprehensibility and consistency. Just to give a flavour of these criteria... On the comprehensibility side, competent authorities will be considering whether the prospectus is free from unnecessary reiterations, whether the related information is grouped together, 
really critically whether an easily readable font size is used and whether it has a structure that enables investors to understand its contents. Some of those points tie in with the segregation point I mentioned before. It's hard to tell how impactful the scrutiny and approval provisions will be until competent authorities really start applying them, but it's good news that the ability of an individual authority to gold plate these by requiring additional info or applying additional criteria is limited. What's the next topic? Oh yes, something we've both been worried about is whether the requirements on competent authorities to provide ESMA with certain data at the point of notification of approval of a prospectus will end up becoming a practical burden for issuers. Yes, it isn't exactly the world's most interesting point, but it could be one of the things that ends up consuming some time and cost. The Level 2 Regulatory Technical Standards, commonly referred to as RTS, list all the data that the competent authorities have to send to ESMA, ranging from CFIs and LEIs to consideration offered, whatever that might mean. I think we're talking about 30 fields of data in total. We know of at least one competent authority that is planning to require issuers to provide them with the data. I worry because completing the data fields is not a simple prospectus or final terms extraction process. Some of the fields don't exactly map across and will generate questions and confusion. There will undoubtedly be time and cost involved if issuers do have to provide this data, particularly in the short term whilst things bed down. Sadly, I think you're right, Jen. It looks like we just have time to talk about the topics of publication, supplements and advertisements. I'm not going to dwell long on publication. Going forward, things will be substantially the same, but with some tweaks around the edges, and I'll pick up on a couple of these. First, the issuer has to publish on a dedicated section of a website. The most common route for publication of debt prospectuses is publishing on the website of the regulated market. But an issuer, of course, has no say over where the prospectus appears on the regulated market's website. It's going to be hard for it to control compliance there then. Agreed, but hopefully the regulated market operators will try to be helpful. Secondly, prospectuses will have to remain publicly available for at least 10 years after publication. It's odd that publication, which is really a one-time event, should be distorted by this obligation in this way. And as I mentioned earlier, hyperlinks are, of course, likely to break during this time. Yeah. So, Jen, do you want to quickly talk about supplements before I finish up on advertisements? Of course, we should remind people that the new prospectus regulation requirements won't apply in relation to any supplements to grandfathered prospectuses. Okay. Again, things largely look the same on supplements, but there are a couple of changes worth going through. Over the years, we've had many questions about whether withdrawal rights apply in a wholesale context, but the text of the supplement provisions have never been entirely free from doubt, and the wording of Article 23 of the Prospectus Regulation doesn't clarify this. However, it was helpful to see ESMA put pen to paper on this point in its final report on the draft RTS, and they confirmed that withdrawal rights do not apply to admission to trading prospectuses, so where the offer side of things is exempt. But where an issuer is in that non-exempt offer scenario, where withdrawal rights would apply, then financial intermediaries will be required to inform investors of the possibility of a supplement and contact investors on the day it's published. There's no definition of financial intermediaries, but it's likely to catch underwriters, so the requirement may be challenging. 
As indeed we pointed out in various ICMA consultation responses, it's not uncommon for underwriters of debt securities to be unaware in advance of a supplement, particularly in a programme context. Yes. Finally, I'll quickly mention that the existing Level 2 provisions, which mandate the scenarios when a supplement is required, are carried across into the new prospectus regime. That is, supplements are mandated for an increase in the programme amount and adding a new public offer jurisdiction or admission venue. Going forwards, where an issuer of non-equity securities chooses to include a profit forecast or estimate in order to meet its general duty of disclosure, then under the new prospectus regime, this would entail the production of a supplement should it be withdrawn or amended. Right, let's move on to advertisements. As we said at the beginning of the podcast, there's no grandfathering in the prospectus regulation for compliance with the new advertising requirements. So these will need to be considered from the 21st of July onwards, even where the advertisement relates to an issue under a prospectus which has been grandfathered. There's no need for panic though, as various aspects of the regime are the same as under the PD, and I think the new requirements should be relatively manageable, particularly as there are industry efforts to come up with any language that might be required and to reach a consensus on what exactly is an advertisement in this context. So under the PD, we know that things like term sheets, screen announcements and roadshow materials could be caught by the advertisements regime. And we know that an advertisement has got to be recognisable as such, has to refer to the PD prospectus and must be consistent with that prospectus. You also have to update an advertisement if there's a supplement to the prospectus. And the new requirements will get us to essentially the same place. Under the new regime, Article 22 of the prospectus regulation makes it clear that the advertisements regime is still only relevant where you have to have a prospectus. The only thing is that the scope of the application is broader because the definition of advertisement now refers to a communication rather than an announcement. So a potentially wider range of disclosures, including bilateral communications, could be caught? They could, but it's important to bear in mind that to be an advertisement, a communication has to relate to a specific offer or admission to trading, and it's got to be aiming to specifically promote subscription or acquisition of securities. Well, that should certainly help to limit the range of things that might be caught. And having identified what things are actually advertisements, as is often the case, changes to what is actually required are tucked away in the nitty-gritty of the Level 2 RTS. Yeah, that's right. So some of the RTS provisions relate to things like needing to identify the location of the prospectus, and others carry across existing requirements, such as the advertisement mustn't contradict the prospectus, mustn't present things in a materially unbalanced way, or include alternative performance measures unless they're also in the prospectus. Also, the RTS includes some additional requirements to be aware of if the advertisement's going to retail investors. Although, unhelpfully, retail investors isn't defined. No, but I think it's fair to say we must be talking about MIFID retail here. I think that's at least how people are going to interpret it. As I mentioned, there are industry efforts to come up with some language that will assist in terms of the legends to be included on in-scope advertisements. And one last point to raise before finishing up is that the oversight of compliance with the advertising activity will fall to the competent authority of the member state where the advertisement is disseminated. So you could have multiple competent authorities involved in compliance with advertising requirements. But the good news is that the scrutiny of advertisements by a competent authority is not going to be a precondition to the offer admission taking place in any member state. So, come on Amanda, 
We've called this podcast third time lucky for the EU prospectus regime from a debt capital markets perspective question mark. It would be wrong of me not to say what's the answer. Is it third time lucky? Okay, so this may be a bit of a cop out here, but I don't think there is anything in PD3 which is unlucky as such. Although it would be fair to say that we haven't secured as much as we might have hoped when the whole PD3 review process first kicked off in the way of meaningful, helpful improvements in the debt space. And that's because so much time was taken up batting away things like the Commission's proposals on getting rid of the wholesale retail distinction, or some of the more problematic aspects of what they were initially proposing on risk factors. And then, as we've said, it really does remain to be seen whether we will end up regarding a number of the changes as falling into the lucky camp. And a lot of that will be in the hands of the competent authorities and how they interpret things. Before we go, we should just say that we are in the process of revamping our existing Prospectus Directive website to reflect the new Prospectus regulation landscape. And we'll make sure we let our client subscribers to that know when it's good to go. So that's it from Jen and me. Thanks very much for listening to the end and apologies for the lack of gags.